All right, well, good morning, y'all. And uh, thank you, Josh and Sarah, for leading us this morning, leading us to God's throne and hopefully to a deep well of grace. If you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, we're going to close out Mark chapter 9 here this morning. But first, we're going to test your memory, which I know everybody's excited about. Everybody loves a good memory test. Here's the question of the day. What one verse summarizes all of the entirety of the Gospel of Mark? This is the interactive portion of today's sermon. I recognize that we're testing your memory because the answer to that question goes back, oh, about nine or ten weeks. And we could probably quibble about which one verse actually summarizes all of Mark, but I made the argument early on that the one verse that captures all of the entirety of the message of Mark's gospel is Mark 10.45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that happens roughly just beyond the halfway point in Mark's gospel. But what we see leading up to it in Mark chapters 1 through 10 is Jesus demonstrating that he has committed himself to serving others. Whether it's healing people, performing miracles, meeting physical needs, meeting spiritual needs, he has dedicated himself to serving others. Jesus came to serve. And when Jesus showed up to serve, he wasn't doing it just as a function of what he does. There was something more behind it. And as he recruited new followers to go with him, these 12 regular dudes who too often were regular jugheads, he is encouraging them, he's pleading with them to model his behavior. And for them to begin to develop a lifestyle of serving others. Jesus put others first and he asked his followers to do the same. That is a timeless message. Jesus is asking his followers today to mimic his lifestyle. Admittedly, we're going to do it very imperfectly. But the life of a follower of Christ is one of a life of serving others and seeking to put others first, modeling and mimicking the life and the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who put others first. Now, there was an order to how Jesus did things, and we should mimic that order as well. Jesus first put the Father first. Jesus' sole focus and aim was to please and do Please the Father and do what the Father asks of him. We're being asked to do the same. That we receive our marching instructions. We receive our pattern of life from what God the Father has instructed us to do. And then Jesus, from there, based on that understanding of who he is related to, who he is connected to, from there, he served others to ultimately glorify the name of the Father. Again, this is a timeless message. Nothing about this has changed in, in the 2,000 years since 
Jesus left this earth. We are called to give our primary, our first, and our deepest allegiance to God the Father. And based on that relationship with him, recognizing what it is that he has given to us, what he has done for us, that we then mimic that and seek to bless and to serve others. This passage begins where we're going to pick up this morning. It starts with Jesus repeating something that was hard to hear the first time that he said it. He first says this in Mark chapter 8. But what he repeats at the beginning of, of this passage, starting in verse 30, is going to shape what's going to happen in the verses that follow. So these are, it might appear to be disconnected. Okay, Jesus is saying this, and then he's saying this, and then he's saying this. But if you put it, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, you recognize these all flow together and they inform the thoughts that come behind it. Jesus' hard truth that his disciples were struggling with in Mark chapter 8, they're going to struggle with again in Mark chapter 9. It is that he is going to suffer. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there. Well, we have to ask the question, where is there? At this point, they were leaving Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of in the northern part, if you were to imagine. Uh, imagine Israel, but not quite in Lebanon. Caesarea Philippi is there, and beginning to work their way south. At this point in the story, from this point forward, all that Jesus is doing is going to be along the way to Jerusalem. And he's going to travel through Galilee. He's going to end up in Capernaum. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Depending on your translation, you will either read that Jesus said that he would be delivered or would be betrayed. Uh, the New King James Version uh, says betrayed. Now, I'm not asking you to throw away your New King James Version Bibles, but that might not be the best translation of, of the word there. We need to recognize that Jesus is being delivered. It's what it says in verse 31. Yes, there was a sense of betrayal, particularly by Judas, who sold himself out to the religious leaders who were eager to get rid of Jesus. But Judas was just a piece of the puzzle of God's great plan of what he was going to do with his son, Jesus. Jesus wasn't killed because he was betrayed. Jesus was killed on the cross because that was God's good plan from the very beginning. And so Jesus is letting us know, and I think the better translation for that word is that he was delivered, that he would be delivered, that God was going to see through his plan to send his son to the cross to die in our place. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has mentioned this, and the disciples are struggling with it. We see in verse 32, they did not understand the saying. It's not that they didn't comprehend it. I mean, they knew what he said. 
But there are pieces of it that were foreign to them. Remember the prevailing opinions that when Messiah would come, he would be a great military leader that would lead the Israelites out of the tyranny of the Roman Empire, that would protect the Jews and create a massive Jewish revolution against the Romans. What do you mean that we're going to watch you die? And it says they were afraid to ask him. Perhaps they have a distinct memory. Because the last time that Jesus brought this up, somebody decided to open his big trap. Our good buddy Peter, who many of us find great identity with. And Peter put himself in a position where he then rebuked Jesus for having said this and then got rebuked back for having rebuked Jesus in the first place. And perhaps the disciples were like, you know, I think we'll just let this one go for now. Maybe it'll make more sense later. But this prediction that Jesus makes for a second time, it then serves as a backdrop for what he's going to say in the verses that follow. Because what is the essence of the message that Jesus is saying? I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, but it's going to be on your behalf. I'm not doing this as a show. I'm not doing it as a demonstration. I'm not doing it as a protest. I'm not doing it as symbolic. I'm doing it to rescue you. So with that, keeping that in mind, his instructions next to his disciples make just a little bit more sense. Picking up in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. So now they're traveling further south. Again, on the way to Jerusalem. This is now the slow march into Jerusalem and to that fateful day where Jesus will be crucified. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, do we really think Jesus did not know what they were discussing? Can you imagine the horror of the disciples? Oh, no. That's right. He knows and hears everything. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Well, isn't this just silly? Here are the 12 disciples walking alongside, perhaps behind Jesus, and trying to figure out, hey, who's the greatest? Meanwhile, Jesus has performed miracle after miracle, healing after healing, incredible teaching left and right, and they're like, hey, which one of us is the greatest? I've encouraged us in the past to be careful and gentle with the disciples because we are just like them. Now, maybe we not, would not have been as bold out loud to ask the question, who's the greatest? We're far too sophisticated for that. But within our own hearts, there certainly is that temptation. What were you discussing on the way? The embarrassment that must have come over them when they realized who was asking the question and why. And the text records for us that Jesus sat down with his disciples. And in ancient culture, that was how rabbis taught. They did not teach standing up like this. If an ancient rabbi were to walk in and to see me teaching like this, he would wonder, what in the world are you doing? It sounds really good right now to take a seat um, and, and do this, but 
will allow modern conventions to persist. He sat them down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Keep the cross in your mind as you're hearing this. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And the dragging in of a child is definitely sending a word picture to his disciples. Now, we have a modern understanding of the value and the beauty and the gift of children. We live in a modern times where we don't really wrestle with infant mortality the way that they would have in ancient times. In ancient times, they didn't have what we have. And so very often, little children weren't really treated as valuable until they reached age five because so many died before they reached age five. They were, in some respects, many respects, second-class citizens. And so Jesus is sending a message to his disciples. Here are so-called second-class people. No, they have value. They have worth. And so Jesus is now supplying a new definition for greatness. It would have confronted every thought that the disciples would have had about what greatness is which, oddly enough, mirrors a modern understanding of greatness. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to be last. You can imagine the disciples, again, anticipating this Messiah who would release them from Roman influence. A strong military leader with status and prestige. And here's our leader saying he's going to die. And he's telling us that we have to be last. Jesus' definition of greatness would have been as jarring then as it is today. We measure greatness in ways that God never intended. We measure greatness by power, prestige, status, accomplishments, wealth. How slick are they? Are they good orators? Are they multi-gifted in various ways? And Jesus said, it doesn't matter. Are you willing to be last? Are you willing to be a servant? For the Son of Man came not, not to be served, but to serve. That theme that dominates the Gospel of Mark shows up here as Jesus instructs his disciples, you're going to have to be last. If you want to be great, you're going to have to be last. The conversation continues. And these disciples, once again, another episode of Adventures and Missing the Point. First having this conversation, okay, who among us is the greatest? And then John pipes up with a whole new concern. That seems to come almost out of 
nowhere, but yet it's pretty consistent for the disciples who are just jugheads. I mean, they love Jesus, but they're jugheads, which is why I like the disciples. I love Jesus, but I'm a jughead. So after Jesus does this teaching about, hey, if you want to be great, you're going to have to be last. You're going to have to be a servant. John pipes up, starting verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Really, John, this, this is your concern. This is your problem. Okay. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John observes somebody having a demon extracted for him, done in the name of Jesus, but John's a little put out by it because it wasn't one of the twelve that got to do it. Like Jesus, clearly they're in the wrong because they're not with us, right? John's looking for some kind of weird vindication about this. And Jesus confronts that and cuts it off. And the message for us is that we ought to be very wary of looking to highlight our differences rather than our similarities. There are multiple denominations that are out there. Do I agree with every single thing that every denomination has to say? Nope. Can we agree on the essentials? Absolutely. I can agree with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters on certain topics because I know what they teach when it comes to the need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only one. There's lots of room for agreement with our Anglican brothers and sisters. And though I know that they're in the midst of their own kind of strife right now, there are things to be learned that we can celebrate with our Episcopalian brothers and sisters. You are allowed to have your convictions, and you are allowed to have your preferences, and you're allowed to have a clear picture of what you think is a best way of going about doing things, but we need to be really careful and very cautious and very deliberate and recognizing the differences between essential and non-essential issues. One of the great topics that comes up is modes of baptism. You can dunk them, you can sprinkle them, you can pour. There's different methods. Do you do it with babies? Do you only do it with adults or those who are professed believers? Those are good questions to ask. And they're fun to grapple with. Well, fun. If you're a theological nerd like me, they are fun to grapple with. Is it worth dividing over? No. If the essential message is that a person needs to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation, that is essential. How they get wet isn't as essential, so let's not let it be that. We could go on down a very long list, and if I did that, I would 
indeed be preaching an hour and a half long message about all these things. But hopefully you get the picture that it is our responsibility to be wise enough to recognize the differences between that which is essential and that which is non-essential. There are a variety of views when it comes to, obviously, baptism, in times questions, biblical interpretation, so many different things that we could split over, and yet there's so much that we have in common because of our union with Christ. And it would be really good for us to practice focusing more on what we have in common, what we have similar with other brothers and sisters in Christ. J.C. Ryle is one of my, you know, old dead guys from a long time ago. And it's my favorite. I'll nerd out for you here. My favorite English soccer team is based exclusively on the fact that J.C. Ryle was the first bishop of Liverpool. And in the city of Liverpool, there are two teams in the Premier League, Liverpool and Everton. And cheering for Liverpool is like cheering for the Boston Red Sox, and I just won't do it. So I'm an Everton guy, but it's because of J.C. Ryle. And he says this in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. This is going to be a little bit of an extended quote, so hang with me. I just want to confirm that's not my dog. Is it mine? Oh, okay. Hey, your dog's welcome to bark all through church. I just want to make sure it wasn't mine because I'm going to stop. J.C. Ryle wrote this. To this intolerant spirit, we owe some of the blackest pages of church history. Christians have repeatedly persecuted Christians for no better reason than that which is here given by John. They have practically proclaimed to their brothers and sisters, you must either follow us or not work for Christ at all. Let us be on guard against this feeling. It is only too near the surface of all our hearts. Let us learn to realize that tolerant spirit which Jesus here recommends and be thankful for good works wherever and by whomever they are done. Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or work by our side. We may think our fellow Christians mistaken in some points. We may imagine that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if everyone worked in the same way. We may see many evils arising from religious dissension and divisions. But all this must not prevent us rejoicing if the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved. Is our neighbor warring against Satan? Is he really trying to labor for Christ? This is the grand question. Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. I've said from this pulpit repeatedly, we are not in competition with any other church in this community. I pray for the success 
and for the effectiveness of every church in this community. I've got relationships with pastors of other churches in this community, and I love my brothers, and I love what they're doing. They might be doing it differently or better or worse than we are. Who cares? They are actively seeking to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. We're not in competition. The numbers out there are astounding. Based on the population of Snohomish County, even if every seat and every church were filled, we'd still be missing 60% of the population of Snohomish County. I love my brothers in Christ who are laboring faithfully in their churches. And I love our sister churches that are laboring faithfully to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. Please, 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 let us be sure that we don't adopt the mindset of John here and grow intolerant because the people who are doing this work are somehow not a part of us. Jesus is encouraging us and pleading with us to put others first, starting with God and then the spiritual needs of those that are around us. And it's a corrective statement that Jesus makes. He continues on in verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, let's stop there. He's not talking about children at this point. What he's talking about is those who are followers of Jesus, but maybe not particularly mature in their faith yet. Maybe they haven't read as much. Maybe they're not as aware. Maybe they don't have it all figured out. Whoever causes one of these little ones, a fellow believer in Christ, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow, that's strong language. You know that a millstone was designed for crushing grain. And the way that millstones were built, it couldn't be operated just by human hands. Very often, it needed to be controlled by an animal. We're talking about a large piece of stone. The one record we have of a human doing it was Samson, uh, but he had to do it as punishment. And so Jesus is saying, if you were to act this way, it would be better for this millstone to be hung around your neck and you drop into the sea. You're never recovering from that. That's how serious Jesus is taking the idea of us, his followers, proving to be a stumbling block to those who are newer to the faith. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenching fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in your cells and be at peace with one another. Is Jesus telling us to literally remove body parts? No, it's an overstatement. It's hyperbole, but he's trying to make a point that we need to be watchful over ourselves. 
at how it is that we conduct ourselves with other believers, particularly newer believers, and that we not create unnecessary stumbling blocks that are out there. Discussions, yes, please have vibrant, mind-nourishing, challenging discussions. But don't make it an issue of salvation. Don't cause a new brother or sister in Christ to stumble or perhaps even back away, but like, I don't want any part of this. I'm not asking you to have an unreasonable or an unintellectual faith. I think your mind is a part of this. But don't get so caught up in your mental arguments that you lose the big picture, that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And he asked his followers to do the same exact thing that we would position ourselves as last, that we would adopt the role of a servant and seek to bless those that are around us. And he says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The question in front of us is, what is the saltiness that can be lost? If that's the description, what's the saltiness that could be lost? I mean, you're aware of this, that salt over time can lose its flavor. It can lose its seasoning properties. It can lose its preserving properties. It just becomes very, very, very tiny rocks. What is the saltiness? The best way for us to understand is in the context of everything else that Jesus has said in this passage and where the entirety of the Gospel of Mark is going. The saltiness is a devotion to self-sacrifice, service to others, and putting others first. That's the saltiness that can be lost. And then look at the last sentence that he said. It won't be on the screen. You have to look in your Bible. Be at peace with one another. There is no shortage of fights that we could have with each other. There is no shortage of ways that we can divide ourselves up and create our own miniature camps and miniature tribes. Cancel culture, which exists out there, guess what? It exists within the church as well, regrettably. But Jesus calls us to something different, to be at peace with one another. Paul does us a huge favor, and he expands on this a little bit more in his letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Adopt the mind of Christ. Adopt the posture of Christ. Adopt the attitude of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you've told us how to navigate through this world. We recognize that on our own, we can't do it. What you have asked of us, what you have demanded of us, our flesh does not enjoy cooperating with that one bit. And so we're confronted with whether or not we're going to trust you 
to lead us, if we're going to trust that your way is better than our way, if we're willing to crucify our agenda so that we can pursue yours, if we're willing to put to death ourselves so that we can be a blessing to others. Father, pray that you would reveal in us where the gaps exist. That you identify for us the areas in which we have been unwilling to allow you to take the lead. To identify for us areas where we have pursued our own form of greatness and we have not adopted the posture of a servant. Father, I pray for us as individuals, but I also pray for us as a church family that we would be servants, that you would kill the flesh and give us new life in the spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.